You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to uh, the book of Acts chapter 4. Book of Acts chapter 4. We're coming out of a series in uh, the book of Exodus, and we're moving towards a series that will happen in the book of Acts um, but in between these two series, I started a uh, mini-series on just understanding better who we are as a church and what we believe here at Sovereign Hope. Uh, we did two sermons where uh, we looked at the gospel and our understanding of the gospel here at our church, and then also church life um, and what it looks like to, to be an active uh, member here at Sovereign Hope. And then for the past two weeks, uh, our sermon series got derailed a little bit because I've been sick, and so I'm super thankful to be back Uh, this week with you guys. I was here last week, but uh, honestly, I was functioning probably at about 25% at best. Um, I don't know what hit me, but um, I haven't been sick like that in a long time, and super thankful for Tyson and and Marcus who were willing to step in, and Marcus anticipated that I may not be ready early in the week and volunteered to uh, take over last week, so really thankful for those guys and the extra effort they put in to to preach to you guys the last two Sundays. Um, So, This is where I wanted to end our series, so maybe at some point we'll come back and fill in the gaps down the road, but um, we had talked about our our name even uh, several weeks ago and what sovereign hope means and the idea of being able to hope in the fact that God is in control of everything, that he's in control of our circumstances, and then being able to uh, really kind of in that day, looking at the hope that we have that Jesus is coming back. And, and I want to look more at that today, what it looks like for us to hope in the return of Christ. That's our hope here at this church. That may not be the hope that, that believers are pointed to at every church in this area, but I can tell you that uh, we planted this church on the idea that we would point each other regularly to the hope that we have that Jesus is coming back. Um, that's the that's the focal point of the New Testament, that Jesus is coming back, and that shapes our understanding of today, not just our future, but really shapes our understanding of today and how we go about today, all right? Um, I want to, to show a quick clip, though, to kind of introduce today, because this is a clip of one of my favorite movies. Um, I remember in college seeing this clip and thinking, man, this really resonates with me theologically in my understanding of what it feels like sometimes to be waiting for Jesus to come back. So the clip comes from the movie Count of Monte Cristo, and I'm not going to give you a ton of it, and it's a really short clip. Um, But just to give you a quick context to understand what's happening, the younger guy in the clip is a part of the new regime in uh, France where uh, he is a part of the new government as Napoleon Bonaparte has been removed from power. The elder gentleman in the clip is his dad, who's a loyalist to Napoleon and longs for Napoleon to come back and to be in power. So watch this clip and pay attention to their dialogue, and I'll tell you how it relates to what we're looking at today. Father! Where is he? Daddy, what's he done now? Now you listen to me, Father. I am the chief magistrate and official of the new regime, and I cannot afford to have my own father mixed up in treasonous affairs. You know, (laughs) in the end, treason is a matter of dates. And I shall be the patriot, and you the traitor, when the emperor returns. Stop it. Stop it, you old ruin. Notice what he says there. He says that when the emperor returns, everything's going to get flipped, 
right? Like right now, he looks crazy to be living in light of this ruler that's supposed to come back, this ruler that was here for a time, and now he's supposed to come back. Everybody else has kind of moved on. They've moved on with a new government, a new perspective, new realities, and this guy's holding on to this hope that, that the emperor is going to come back one day. And he says, treason's a matter of dates, right? Like when, when the emperor comes back in his mind and he assumes control and power, now he will look like the, 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 the wise individual who gave his loyalty to this king. Uh, everybody else will be in the wrong. Um, and I think that's the tension that we live in today as believers, right? Like oftentimes we're viewed as out of touch or we're viewed as um, irrelevant in today's culture because we're longing for something. We're longing for a ruler who was here for a time, but visibly is no longer here, right? And we have this hope and this anticipation that he's coming back and ruling and reigning forever. But in the meantime, the world sits and operates as though that will never happen, and, and, and there's coming a day when it will. And when Jesus does return, everything will be flipped. And all of a sudden, we who look crazy today will look like uh, uh, we, we've been full of wisdom the whole time, right? Because our loyalty, our allegiance has been to the king who isn't here right now, but is coming once again. Our summary sentence for today, as believers, the second coming is our ultimate hope, both for our future and for our present because the promised return of Jesus gives us something glorious to long for and gives us cause for joy and contentment today. That's, that's a key piece that we've been highlighting that's uh, part of our mission and vision here at Sovereign Hope is that we're a group of people who are waiting for Jesus to come back, but in our waiting, we find joy and contentment today, right? We're not just people who live in the future and are completely detached from today, we certainly have this hope of what's going to happen in the future, but in the meantime, that future hope is absolutely shaping our daily practices. We're going to see how that kind of works today. For our kids, Jesus is coming again, which allows us to trust him today and with our future. Hoping in the second coming starts with believing in the resurrection of Jesus, Right? Like we can't hope in a return of Jesus if we don't also already hope in the fact that we believe he's alive and well today. That brings us to Acts chapter 4. Now I'm excited when we get into our, our series in the book of Acts because what we're going to see is that the resurrection and the return of Jesus is the focus of the early church. This is their message that they're being persecuted for. So look at Acts chapter four, verse one. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Sadducees were a, a religious sect that didn't believe in the resurrection, so they're obviously going to be annoyed at this teaching. What's the teaching that's happening by Peter and John? It's the, the proclamation of Jesus, his resurrection, but also this hope of resurrection for the dead as well, right? It's that understanding that Jesus is alive and well today. He's coming back again, and when he comes, he's bringing dead saints with him who will experience resurrection, that's the hope that we have as believers. Jesus is alive, and we too will be made alive forever, which gives us hope and assurance when we have loved ones who pass away early and often before Christ returns. What happens to them? Scripture is very clear. I mean, they're coming with Jesus 
when he returns. So hoping in the second coming starts with believing in the resurrection. We see the, the, the early church, Peter and John teaching this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul talking here says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul picks up that same teaching. Peter and John proclaiming the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching the same message. Christ is alive. Christ is well. He is risen again and he is coming to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus uh, is the grounds for our our salvation. Romans chapter four uh, talks about the the righteousness applied to Abraham, the same righteousness that can be applied to us today by believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verses nine through 13 talk about the the need for us to, to call upon the name of the Lord, to believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. And then 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter one, verses nine and 10 says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Man, our hope is tied up in a resurrected Jesus who's also a returning Jesus, one who is coming back to rule and to reign forever, which means the, the thing that defines us, when we say believers, so our, our summary sentence today says, as believers, the second coming is our ultimate hope. What do we mean when we say believers? What defines us as believers is that we believe Jesus is alive and we believe he is coming again to save those who eagerly wait for him. Hebrews chapter nine de- describes true Christians in this manner of eagerness. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grounds for hope then for us as believers, the message that you hear hopefully repeatedly taught forever here at this church until Jesus comes back, is that our hope lies with Jesus who is alive and who is coming again. The second coming is a a massive focal point of the New Testament. We've we've given these stats before, but one out of 25 verses in the New Testament deals with the second coming of Jesus. Every New Testament book except Galatians, 2 and 3 John and Philemon mention it. And and those don't just specifically because of the, the nature of what those books are about. Every other New Testament book talks about Jesus coming back. It's not just Revelation. It's not just 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Every New Testament book is coming back to this idea of Jesus returning, which means to fully hope in the second coming necessitates that we know about it, that we're informed about it. That's one of the the desires that I had when we began to talk about planting a church is that we would would plant a a place where, where a body of believers could gather who would feel informed about the return of Jesus, who would understand the, the teachings of the New Testament, particularly about what it looks like for Christ to come back. Because that's the, the, the idea that's pitched uh, regularly by these New Testament authors is that believers should know about the return of Jesus. Look what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul says, I'm I'm teaching you about the coming of Jesus. I'm teaching you about the return of Jesus so that you'll be informed, so that it will shape your grieving. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, I want you to know. I want you to know what's happened to believers who've passed away. I want you to know what happens when people amongst yourself die early before Jesus returns. This was a passage that we came to regularly last spring when we lost Andrew, that we didn't have to wonder what was happening to him. We didn't have to wonder where he is today, that we have information that's been given to us. We don't have to be uninformed. We don't have to grieve as as individuals who have no hope. We can know. We can know because scripture informs us. And Paul says, I want you to know this. I want you to cling to this. I don't want you to grieve like the world. I want you to have hope in your grieving that because Jesus died and because he rose again, dead saints are going to be risen again too. I want you to be informed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. He says, I want you to know about this. I want you to know about the return so that you're not deceived. I want you to be informed about it. I want you to get it. I want you to know the second coming. To not be informed leads to incorrect reactions to both our personal circumstances and the circumstances around the world. Let me say that again. To not be informed about the return of Jesus to not be informed about the second coming and the hope that we have as, as believers, is, it leads to incorrect reactions to our personal circumstances and the circumstances around the world. It means we fall into despair and sorrow if we're not regularly reminding ourselves of the truths of the hope of the second coming of Jesus. You, you may know people who start to freak out when they start to hear about rumblings of wars and rumors of wars and things happening around the world, right? It it can start to shake us a little bit, right? It can make us grow fearful if we're not careful. Who's in control? What's happening? What's gonna become of this? Notice what, what scripture tells us about these signs and what they're meant to do for us. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 verse 28 says this. Now this is after there's been some discussion about these signs of earthquakes and, and wars and rumors of wars and, and whatnot. It says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I want you to see the unsettled, un, uh, un, unrestfulness of the world. I want you to see the circumstances starting to deteriorate. I want you to see things coming unglued and I want it to awaken you. I want it to create a deeper longing for, hey, my redemption's coming closer and closer. My salvation is nearer now than when I first begun. Jesus is coming. These signs are meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is returning. Look what Mark uh, chapter 13 says. Mark chapter 13, verse five says this. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. 
and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 21 of the same chapter. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Notice how Jesus is informing his followers. These things are gonna happen. Don't let it overly alarm you. Let it instead inform you that I am coming back. Paul picks up that same messaging. Hey, I want you to be informed. I want you to know. I want you to understand what's to come in the future to keep you grounded today so that you don't fall away. Now, as we talk about the second coming, there's, there's things that, that we would call us to agree upon here in this church. And then there's gonna be things that we disagree about, right? Like there's a lot of mystery to the return of Jesus. Well, we're gonna dive into 1 Corinthians 6 here in just a little bit because that's the passage that we're working through in our uh, C groups and D groups right now. Well, that passage alludes to uh, a day coming where believers are gonna rule the world, judge the world, particularly even uh, judging angels. I don't have a whole lot of information about what that looks like. Right? Like, I don't really know how that's going to play itself out. So there's, there's a lot of mystery that still exists about the future and what it looks like for Jesus to come back. But there's some things that are real, really clearly given to us that, that kind of remove the mystery for us about some of the most important things. Things that we can agree upon for sure here as believers is that he is coming. And he's coming physically and visibly. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that. Remember that the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven and they're kind of waiting like, is he gonna come back right now? Like, did he go to get something? And the angel comes and says like, hey, you don't need to wait here, but do know that he's coming back in the same way. He is coming back physically. He's coming back visibly to rule and to reign forever. We agree upon that as Christians. He's coming physically. He's coming visibly. What's he coming to do to establish his rule over all? with either righteous commendation or condemnation, right? He's either coming to reward those who have followed him or to judge those who haven't. And part of that coming that we've been informed about too is that he's bringing dead saints to reunite with alive saints forevermore. Those who have, who have passed away early, they're coming with Jesus. Those who are alive and well will be united with them in the air. We're gonna be with the Lord forevermore, we can disagree about some things about the return of Jesus. We can disagree about when he's coming. We can disagree about how many times he's coming, right? We can disagree about some of the details about how he returns. But what we can know are the things that are given to us in great clarity, that we find victory with Jesus and that evil finds defeat. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and with the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what happens for us as believers when Jesus comes back. If we're dead, we come with him. If we're alive, we're here waiting. And then we're reunited with all saints together for all time, forevermore. Victory with Jesus. 
It's in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we see the defeat of evil. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here we have a picture of Jesus coming and he comes to defeat evil. He comes to defeat deception. He comes to defeat Satan and Satan's forces. They find defeat in the return of Jesus. It's these truths, these clear truths that give us the information we need to stay encouraged and to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, that passage we just read about Jesus coming and reuniting believers and dead believers together. We're told at the end of that section, encourage one another with these words. We're told to, um, to encourage one another in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. A similar passage talking about the return of Jesus. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then the familiar passage in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 tells us not to forsake to get the assembling of ourselves together, to gather together regularly, to stir one another up to love and good works. Why? As we wait for Jesus to come back, to keep us faithful as we wait for him. I'm gonna give you two quick points today. After a long introduction, number one, Let the return of Jesus shape your daily perspectives. Let the return of Jesus shape your daily perspectives. I told you this isn't just a doctrine for our future. It's a doctrine for our today. The return of Jesus should absolutely shape the way that I live my life today. Because Jesus is coming, we should be adjusting in our purity We should be coming more like Jesus. Our our, our sanctification process should be making us more and more like him. Our spiritual maturity is directly tied to our understanding and anticipation of the return of Jesus. Note that we can't mature spiritually the way that we're meant to if we're not also growing in our understanding of what it means for Jesus to come back. We should be informed about this. We should be knowledgeable about what scripture teaches about the return of Jesus. Why is it so important? Why would I say something like that, that our spiritual maturity is absolutely tied to our understanding of the return of Jesus? Because think about it, the more we get caught up in treasuring the things of this life, the more we begin to neglect genuine Christian fellowship because we start to deprioritize our personal relationship with Christ. All of this combined leads us to longing for his return less and less, right? So, The return of Jesus keeps me grounded in my priorities that this isn't the end, that this isn't the end all be all. But if I'm not thinking about Jesus coming, then the things of today of this world become really, really important. And the more important the things of this world become, the less important my relationship with Christ becomes, which then also ties into a lesser importance about being in genuine fellowship with other Christians too. But when I'm growing in my anticipation of his return, I'm motivated to meet with other Christians and to be about the Lord's business. 
we ought to see that our purity, our, our, our holiness is absolutely attached to our belief that he's coming back. Look what Titus chapter 2, verse 11 tells us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, un- for all, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our purity is attached to our belief in his return. This, this idea of self-controlled lives, it flows from good theology that Jesus is coming back one day. Our, our lack of an eagerness for him to come back is tied to a lack of purity. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do we love the idea of Jesus coming back? It puts an end to the things here. And if we've invested too much here, that could certainly be something that we're not looking forward to. The idea that's pitched throughout the New Testament, though, is that we long for it, we're eager for it, we desire it, because we understand it to be far superior to anything this world has to offer. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Right? We're described as, as children who are becoming like him, right? Because we long for his return and we practice righteousness in anticipation of that. He goes on in, in chapter three of first John to describe that we can't really we can't really lay hold to a salvation in the future that's not changing us today, right? Like the idea is that we're becoming pure today in anticipation of a day where we, be, we will be brought to full purity. When Christ returns, we're told that we will be like him. We will be made like him. And, and if that's the truth that we're holding to, if that's the hope we're clinging to, it absolutely shapes our practice today. It says in verse four of chapter three, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The idea is that we believe he's coming back and it shapes our purity today. Number two, because Jesus is coming, we should be anticipating a new reality. A new reality that's to come. The degree <clears throat> the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the degree to which we see the world as it really is, right? The, the degree to which we long for Christ to return is a measure of the degree to, to how we see the world as it really is, the same way that God sees it, in bondage to sin and rebellion against God, in the power of the evil one is what 1 John five nineteen says. As we mature spiritually, we will naturally long for his return more and more, a new reality that we're anticipating, just like the movie clip that we saw, right? 
the, the, the older guy in the, in the clip says, man, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating him coming back. The emperor is to return. And when he does, he is going to change all of this. And you see like this joyous contentment in him, right? Like, like this is going to happen. And when it does, man, it's going to be glorious. Now it doesn't play out that way, but he believes that it will. And it's absolutely shaping his experience in that day. Our anticipation is far different, right? Because our hope is in something that is assured to happen. Our anticipation of this cosmic renewal, Jesus coming and changing everything, his return, death and sin being removed, a new era of righteousness and justice being introduced, the anticipation of that day should be shaping every day leading up to it. And that brings us to where I wanna, I wanna show you some things in 1 Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six is where our D groups and C groups are this month. And it says in verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice how he takes an everyday type situation and ties it to a hope in the return of Jesus. He says, look what's going on around you. Now, we talked in our D group about the fact that this this passage should cause us to always just give pause to doing things the way that culture does things. Right? Like we talked about like in this time frame, um, you would have had people just constantly going to court and trying to take advantage of one another. That's the whole picture here is that they're acting like unbelievers. They're, they're using the court system to take advantage of one another. Now, this, this plays into what we talked about in Exodus, right? Like all those laws that talked about how we should care for one another and, and provide for one another. And when bad things happen to us, this is how it should be settled amongst one another, right? Like that was the the foundation for Old Testament Israel, these laws that were gonna help shape when you felt like you were done wrong. What's being addressed here in 1 Corinthians 6 by Paul is that, hey, you're, you're, you're acting like unbelievers here. Like you're trying to take advantage of one another. There's no mindset of, of, of being sacrificial towards each other. And there's certainly no mindset of valuing the wisdom of Christians over unbelievers, He's like, you're running to unbelievers who don't get the reality of things. You're running to unbelievers and and asking them to settle disputes amongst Christians. And he says, don't lose sight of the fact that like in the future, there are no unbelievers here, right? Like they're completely removed from the earth. And the only people left to rule and to reign are the believers, are the people in the church. And he's like, why would you not flock to them right now? Why would you not be working within the church to settle disputes amongst yourselves. 
It's a, whole, it's a whole topic of conversation, a whole sermon in and of itself. The point that I want you to see is that he's saying, hey, because of what you believe about the future, it should absolutely be shaping your understanding of today and how to go about today. You, you, don't, you don't just dismiss what's going to happen in the future, Christ's return, and what the implications are of that to go about doing some crazy stuff today. He says, let, let the future shape how you handle today a new reality that we should be anticipating. And then number two, let the return of Jesus shape your ongoing perseverance. Let the return of Jesus shape your ongoing perseverance. Because Jesus is coming, there should be an eagerness in waiting that is apparent to others. We talk about perseverance a lot here. The idea that we hold fast to the gospel, the fact that we hold fast to Jesus, that we don't sway, we don't fall away, that we follow him and we anticipate his return and so we wait upon him. But I want you to see that our perseverance in waiting should be defined by more than our consistency, but instead by our joy and contentment while doing so. Let me say that again. When we talk about perseverance as Christians, our perseverance in waiting should be defined by more than our consistency, but instead by our joy and contentment while doing so. What am I saying there? That we shouldn't just be people as believers, as Christians, who are just waiting for Jesus, but that there's no joy and contentment and eagerness about it. There's people that persevere in things, but they're absolutely miserable in doing it. That there's no joy and there's no contentment at all. Um, to give you an example, <coughs> um, I, I frequent the McDonald's here in Sonoy, and I have for years, particularly because there's not a lot of options, right? Uh, last week, uh, I tried to endure and persevere in, in getting lunch after church and finally had to call it off. I just said, hey, we can't do it anymore. I need my money back. Like, I've been, I've been waiting for 30 minutes, right? Like, and there's no signs that lunch is coming, What's particularly interesting about McDonald's here in Sonoy, and, and, and all of you have stories of like what, what it's been like to try to get food there. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's like, what is happening, right? I'm going to tell you what's, what's really incredible to me is the perseverance of the workers who continue to work there over the years. Like a lot of them have not changed. Since we planted our church, there are people who are still working there. They're, they're a model of consistency. There is perseverance in working there. But there are also people that have no joy and contentment in the process, right? Like, like I've, I've, I've interacted, I've dialogued with these people. The joy and contentment is lacking. They are consistent. They are persevering. They are there. There's not a lot of joy and contentment. I would ask you, like, are, are you that type of Christian potentially? Are you, are you persevering in the faith in that, yes, like I'm here, I, I've been a part of a church for years, I'm doing the Christian thing. But our perseverance shouldn't be defined strictly by consistency. It shouldn't be just that, hey, we've been doing it for a long time. There's a joy and contentment that I think Scripture expects of us in our perseverance, the hope of what's to come shapes the reality of today, that we find joy and contentment even in hard times because we believe that he's working good for his children. Jesus' return promises me that there's much more to come than what I get to experience here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, 
verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see that there's an anticipation that's described there? That believers who wait do so eagerly. Do so eagerly. Trials should cause us not to question his goodness, but to long for his glory. A glory that we trust he is working for right now. That's the real hope of today is that it's not just that God's got something down the road and we just have to keep waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. The hope of the believer is that God is working today to get us to that point. And he's working everything today for our good as his children and everything tomorrow for his good, for our good as his children. And the next day and the next day and the next day, all of it is meant to get us to that glorious end. It's not just that he's got that and and he'll give it to us down the road, but he's bringing us to that point today. Our day is coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 talks about the rest that's coming for Christians when Jesus returns. Because we know that day is coming, it allows us to accept all the other days leading up to it. Number two, because Jesus is coming, there should be a hopefulness in grieving that is apparent to others too. Hopefulness in our grieving Just like the New Testament church waiting, they saw losses in their waiting. They saw people who passed. All of us will be touched by death at some point if we haven't been already. I'm serving and waiting on the one who has defeated death and holds the keys to life. That's the hope that we have as believers, that that Jesus has come back from the dead. So as we see our loved ones go to death, we have this great hope that death will not conquer them. Revelation 1, 17 through 18 gives us that picture of Jesus alive and well, holding the keys to death in Hades. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He gives us reason to grieve with hope when we lose lost one, or loved ones. Keeps me from fearing my own death, keeps me from being lost in my sorrow over the death of others because reunions are coming. First Thessalonians 4 tells us, don't grieve as those who have no hope. Grieve for sure. It's, it's always hard to lose individuals to death. We're never to celebrate that as though it's a good thing, but we do so with hope. We do so knowing that reunions are coming. Three points of application for you today. Number one, asking yourself the question, are we eagerly waiting for him? Are we eagerly waiting for him as we should? Number one, be evaluating your purity and your priorities as a means of gauging your anticipation of his coming. 
Do you, could, could, you, could you use your purity in your own life? Could you use the priorities that you give your life to as evidence that you're anticipating his coming? Number two, be prayerful for both yourself and others to remain faithful until he comes. It's biblical to do so. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse five gives us this. Uh, it's actually Second Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So he gives us that picture, both condemnation to those who have rejected the gospel, commendation to those who have followed Jesus. Look what he says in verse 11 though. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I pray for you regularly that you're on the right side of that day. I want, you, I want your faith to not be in vain. I want you to have truly believed. So he says, I pray for you. I pray that you stay faithful. The comfort to us is that God answers that type of prayer. Look what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You got both perspectives by Paul there. Paul's saying, I pray for you guys regularly that you make it to the end. I pray that you stay faithful. Then on this other side, this other flip side, he says, hey, the Lord keeps you faithful to the end. I have this assurance that you will make it to the end because that's the way that the Lord works. And then lastly, number three, be prayerful for Jesus to come as a way to remind yourself regularly that he is. Revelation twenty two twenty talks about, Lord, come quickly. You ever, you ever been listening to somebody pray who prays this way? Like you don't hear it often. You don't hear people praying, Lord Jesus, come, come today. When people pray that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what if, what if he answers that prayer and he comes back today? Like immediately, what does it do? It, it, it makes me wonder, like, am I ready for that today? Like, have I, have I done his business like I should have? Am, am I ready to meet him today? Anytime I hear somebody pray that, it alerts me. What if you began to adopt that regularly in your own prayer life? It would keep you aware every single day. Hey, I need to be, I need to be mindful that the hope of my future ought to be shaping my today. That's our hope here at Sovereign Hope. It's the, the hope of the believer in any church where the gospel is being proclaimed. That Jesus is alive. Jesus is well. He is coming back to rule and to reign. That's something we long for in the future but it's absolutely something that should shape our every day leading up to it. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you.
for the assurance and the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We can gather together today knowing that as believers, to believe in Jesus is to believe that his work is sufficient for our salvation. Lord, thank you that we don't have to gather here today wondering if we've been good enough to be accepted by you. We can gather here today proclaiming and believing and clinging to the truth that Jesus is our grounds for acceptance with you. Lord, I thank you that we can gather here today believing and knowing that Jesus is alive, that he's not dead. We can't go visit his tomb, that he's alive and he is at the right hand of you, waiting for you to give the signal for him to come and to reunite all saints for all time together for all eternity. Lord, help us to see that that's our hope, a resurrected Jesus who is returning. Lord, I pray that it would shape our today. Lord, help our priorities and our purity to be shaped by a belief that Jesus is coming back. And Lord, I pray that you'd keep us faithful. Keep us faithful as we wait. Keep us faithful as we long for that return. Lord, I pray that you would increase us in us an eagerness, an eagerness that is expressed through joy and contentment in our waiting. Lord, I pray that unbelievers would look into our life and see a, a people that are waiting, but are doing so with joy and contentment in today. That whatever you're bringing us through, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever challenges, Lord, that, that our, our, our reaction to those things is shaped by a belief that you're working good and that you're coming back. And Lord, we pray for that today. We pray that Jesus would come. We pray that he would come soon. We pray that if it's your will, he would come today. Lord, I pray that that statement itself would, would, would arouse us and awaken in us a desire to leave today with our priorities aligned with yours, with our purity shaped by a desire to be like you, the one that we're waiting for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.